Best Adapted Podcast, the podcast about film adaptations and the stories that inspired them. I am your host, Caleb. With me, as always, is my strange nephew. Uh, Frank, tell me a story that I might know thee. Hi, let me tell you, the story I have is that I've begun TAing in grad school and I have no idea what I'm doing. And so every time that Tuesday morning Zoom class rolls around that I have to lead, I very much feel like Gwen on the chopping block here. It's... um. It's fucking dire out there, but uh, we'll see how it shakes out. Speaking of dire people and dire situations coming on the pod, we have a returning guest. You know him from our Tinker Taylor Soldier Spy episode. He is my brother. Uh, he is not a green knight, but he has a green thumb. A film lover and student of landscape architecture based in Eugene, Oregon. It's Ted. Ted, welcome back to the pod. So, guys, this is a this is a Christmas story, and we're coming off of the Christmas uh season so um how was how how was the meyer family christmas did you have a tree did you uh you know slay some peasants what was your what was the whole deal mostly mostly good i don't know you struck a nerve here uh caleb ted and i both kind of just stayed quiet and puckered our lips for a second trying to think on how to tastefully answer that question no it was nice it was lovely um it was the fun we did not get a we did not go to the movie theater on Christmas, unfortunately, so we didn't get to repeat a, a pretentious art house Christmas special like we like to do, but well, Frank and I did our own. We went to Red Rocket by ourselves. Oh yeah. And that was great. Have you seen Red Rocket, Caleb? Uh no, I haven't seen it yet. Okay. Um if you like Red Robin, you're gonna love Red Rocket. <laughs> Yum. It's the fancy hamburger of uh of uh, what's his name movies. Um yeah, it's it's got bottomless fries. Um, <laughs> um, yeah. No, it was good. Yeah, um, yeah. I I don't know. Like, the, so I okay. Actually, the seasons of this movie, we'll get into it more. I think it's crazy. This movie was not released in no like November it's or December. It's it's an absolute. I saw it in August, and it was like I was in it was in fire season in California, so I got out, and there was this cool orange haze in the sky, but everything was just like too hot. It was it was the wrong fit. I couldn't fucking believe it. We say that, but um, this movie was a hit. It worked. I think this was sort of one of the first, or or one of the only movies that has made a profit this year. And I think presumably because it came out in August and there wasn't shit else to compete with. Not that this was like a, you know, a hit hit, but it was a... No, but 18 is pretty good for these circumstances. Exactly, yeah, yeah. That's what he says in Red Rocket as well, as he's trying to recruit his co-host for biography. <laughs> he says, 18 is pretty good in these circumstances. Oh my god, Frank. I, I really may have to cut that. Um, the, yeah, I don't know. Did it pull the, do you think it pulled the, the, the A24 trick where it makes it look like a big action movie and then you come in and it it just ain't? Well, I, I um, one of my co-workers is not a big um, movie guy, and he actually did go to this movie thinking it was going to be sort of a a dumb, uh, silly little action movie, and actually ended up having such an existential crisis that he quit uh, his job and uh, realized that the only way to live was to live sinfully, uh, and so abandoned uh, journalism and got a job in corporate communications. <laughs> what? What the hell? Yeah, it was... It was, it was a pretty wild of, conversation. That's the opposite <laughs> of what I thought it was going to do. <laughs> I have a friend. I, I have a friend whose brother is in like the he's in the Rangers, and so you know, like it's, you know, trained to be an assassin for the U.S. military essentially. And he's like, 
He has like multiple like fellow members of his training camp. I have the I have all their names wrong here. Guys who met in boot camp who are like, yeah, I saw a Full Metal Jacket, and that's kind of what inspired me to go into the military. What? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we love a willful misreading, um, and are probably guilty of some of our own over the course of this series. But we'll see what happens. Well, on the basis of that, I think we have to recover all prints of Full Metal Jacket and strike it from the cultural memory. Somebody misread it. Somebody did something bad with it, so we got to get rid of it. Got to get rid of it. Uh, but we are gathered here today to discuss The Green Knight, a film based on an Arthurian legend, continuing our King Arthur series. And Ted, what is your, do you have past history with The Green Knight or with Arthurian legend in general? Is it a story you'd read before you saw the film? Uh, I don't, well, I just read the Green Knight poem uh, this morning, but uh, I hadn't, I, I didn't know the story specifically before I saw the movie. Arthur um, and his acolytes and enemies, I mean, it's, they're all over, you know? I mean, my what was my first exposure? Probably like Morgan Le Fay was guiding the treehouse, magic treehouse kids through history. Yeah. Um, like shit like that, you know? And then like. And, um, yeah, I don't, I've never read The Mort. Um, I've certainly seen the Clive Owen movie. I saw Excalibur <laughs> with you, Frank. Uh, yeah. Um, so, you know, it's just kind of, it's just kind of humming in the background, but it, not a huge thing for me, you know? Are you a swords and sorcery guy in general? Absolutely. Or is it just fucking lootly? Absolutely. Um, I, I, like, like Skyrim is one of the five most important things that has happened in the 21st century. <laughs> but you, and you're also kind of an epic poetry fan as well, right? Ted? Like I know you've read like Beowulf and Latoine. Yeah. Yeah. Wrong. No, that actually is it. Uh, I was chastised for calling it the Tain, which is much funnier, but completely wrong. But, <laughs> yeah. I love epic poetry and I've read a lot of other, uh, like Vinland sagas and stuff. I, I love that shit. It's a great, it's, it's a rich, beautiful tradition. So what what is it that you find appealing about about fantasy and about epic poetry? Um, is it is it just is it the scale? Is it the wonder? Is it the the is it the fantasy of it? Or or is it or is it sort of? Do you find any? Um, anything interesting about sort of the the, uh, the continuity yeah. of, of storytelling I, I, that last bit is i think a big part of what i like about i mean what i something i like about history is like um being sort of moved by seeing echoes of myself or people that i might have known in these like individual circumstances um and i love um and I, and I like Northern Europe for the tactility of it, you know, and how well-preserved and integrated a lot of these, like, forts and shit are. And, um, but then, like, like epic poetry, I think, is, like, a great way to really thoroughly immerse yourself into a really alternate mindset. Um, and if you can uh, do a bit of the even the language, if you can, that like really helps a lot. Um, and, but, but there, it's just such an insane, um, and obviously like allegorical worldview, but, um, I, I just find them really fascinating. Um, 
windows into mindsets that like often due to like religion and mysticism are really not present today and i guess it's just like the otherness of it that i find just like incredibly fascinating and they're bloody i mean they're fun you know like like i like like i mean i think both stories should at least have an intimation of violence you know what's it like marriage story is a very violent movie without any like fight you know fist fights and stuff mm. you know and i don't mean that just but but there has to be like that i don't know some intimation of that so you're not a joe swanberg guy um formulating a who is that <laughs> <laughs> uh that's <coughs> mumblecore yeah like mumblecore oh i mean uh, yeah it can I, I, you know i find those who are those those twats the one of them was on the uh the field uh the fantasy football show the duplasses oh, the duplass brothers yeah 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 same shut the, oh yeah shut the fuck up you know <laughs> but bombach <laughs> But Bombach is kind of of that school too, and I don't. Some of his films I really, really like. You know, not all of them. This the Green Knight poem. Um, I did not do an immense amount of reading. I'd read it before in college, um, and I left it to you and Caleb to kind of familiarize yourself more with the text of it. I did look through. I have the James Winnie translation is the copy that I read in college, and it includes this introduction, the beginning, um, which I'm not going to read all of, but it's. I think the two things that I thought were interesting that I didn't realize about the Green Knight or like probably I was sleeping in class when the professor was explaining this. One is that it's like the two fu- it's the fusion of two stories that it, the the Christmas game, this challenge from the Green Knight is itself one story that is like from earlier lore. And then the actual like journey and the trials of Gawain is, is itself like a different story that have been kind of fused together into one epic. And the other I think that's interesting is I'm going to read directly from this introduction, which comes from, yeah, so this is James Winnie's introduction to his own translation. Since a written poem can be read aloud, there is no confusion here, but evidently it suits the poet's purposes to present himself as a simple popular entertainer whose occasional comments to his audience, I shall tell you how they rot and exploitatory remarks about incidents in the story, create an impression of the close relationship that a storyteller must contain to his listeners. However, and he continues on, it's the persona of a popular storyteller that he's addressing. And actually the familiarity with like courtly traditions shows that he probably has more status than like a street level bard. And so it's kind of the performance of a vernacular story. And it's actually, again, this anonymous poet, we don't know who it is, but this anonymous poet probably is not like a a vernacular bard that he's Mm. making himself out to be. Yeah. That's something that we come back to, I think several times over the course of this, we say certainly, talked about it when we did um percival but these are these are stories about nobility that are also meant to be popular it's essentially the first form or, or or the the medieval form of popular entertainment it's it is about nobility and sort of uh, what it is to be an aristocrat but it is absolutely meant to be consumed by um people for whom the aristocracy is like at best alien fucking beings um and i think that that should never be lost these works sort of transcend class as we current currently understand it and um was mass media for the time are there things about the poem caleb that you like aspects of it that are are things that they focus on or that the poet focuses on that you consider a little bit more to be made for popular entertainment than the like you know more 
thematic thrust of the story? Um, well, I can say I, I, uh, rereading it sort of the, um, and I should say that the poem, like Frank said, is kind of bisected. And I actually really think it's, it's kind of in three. The first section is, is the Christmas game. Um, and then there's sort of, they sort of yada, 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 the actual quest to find mm-hmm, the chapel mm-hmm. until they arrive at, at, I believe his name is Bertilax Castle. And then there is another extended sequence of, this sort of court, this very courtly game um, that is interspersed between Gawain rejecting the seductions of Bertilak's wife while Bertilak goes hunting. And I think, I think the the hunt, um, and and yeah. we'll talk to talk about it a little bit. We're going to talk. About, I I want to talk about the fox specifically, as I think uh, playing with this uh, another very popular character from medieval storytelling reynard the fox who is a, a sort of low-born trickster character um mm. and i and um before the final sort of confrontation with um uh with the green knight but i do think this is also different because um than, than many other romances just because of who gawain is as a character um so we've talked before about Percival and about Lancelot on this section, but we have not talked at length about Gawain and sort of what makes him um, an exemplary knight. So Ted, uh, just just for reference, Percival is is a Welsh knight. He's kind of a he's essentially like a a, a redneck. He's like a <laughs> he's he's a country bumpkin who doesn't know anything, and um, and the thing that makes him kind of the a, a great knight is not like it's not necessarily that he's like good at fighting or that he's like very especially not that he's particularly smart it's mostly that he he is the one who undertakes the grail quest that he never finishes and it's sort of the the eternal search okay. um for self-improvement and for the gain of one's lord um and lancelot is sort of the the martial aspect of, of knightlyhood he's not he is, you know, a real bastard, I and mean, he fucks his boss's wife. But he is so good at fighting. That Will you ask for that in your collective bargaining negotiations, September? <laughs> yeah, that's actually uh, that's priority number one. But just for you, you're going to sell out the rest of the team. They're all they're all going to take an eighty percent pay cut, but you get to fuck. <laughs> uh, and I think what's interesting about Gawain is, like, like Percival, he's not presented as particularly good at fighting. He does almost no. He doesn't do any fighting in this poem, but what he is is he is the model of courtliness. He okay. knows what to do in a domestic setting better than anybody else. And uh, I don't know if you guys have both read this. If you guys want to sort of jump off at like why that is so important and and what's so central um, about him. Well, just that I think it's the biggest departure, one of the biggest departures between the 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 poem and the film yeah. itself that David Lowry, and we can kind of go into the other changes that David mm-hmm. Lowry is making or kind of maybe his, what his, his vantage point is on this story. But um, I do have a drop where he sort of explains why he has put, maybe I'll just play that here to get it from the horse's yeah, yeah. mouth. But this is like the essential difference between the virtuous and like the always knows the right thing to do Gawain of the poem and the, and the Gawain we get in, in this film. So this is David Lowry describing the difference between his Gawain and the Gawain of the film. 
Traditionally, Gawain was one of the more virtuous knights of Arthur's Round Table. There are all sorts of versions of him in all of the medieval texts that make up the full canon of Arthurian lore. You can find different interpretations of Gawain, but I wanted to go with one that is that was a little less virtuous, a little less noble, so that he had somewhere to go as a character. And the Gawain we meet in the film is not yet a knight. He has not yet been knighted by Arthur. He has not become the Sir Gawain of legend. And he is a little bit of a brat. He's a little bit of a cad. He's not quite a knightly material just yet. And so by positioning him this way, by introducing him this way, we give him a journey that is that is very traceable in terms of the way in which he gets to the point in which he can become a knight. And the way in which he does that is very tied into the text, but it makes the journey that the character goes on from the original poem far more palatable, I think, to, to modern audiences. So that, to me, I think is maybe the biggest departure. Maybe this is time to kind of switch into pre-pro and the, well, the process of the edit. I think there are, I, I do want to talk a little bit. Well, I mean, maybe we can talk about the, the fox in, in, in the film itself, but I do think there's like that, that hunting section, which kind of also gets a little bit yada 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 in the movie, is like central to establishing who Gawain is and, and like what that quest is. Because I actually quibble with... Um, with David Lowry there and saying that like Gawain is kind of a perfect knight because he is presents himself as, as that. And, and that is his reputation is like the, the model of courtliness, but over the course of the poem and especially this three day hunting trip, he um, kind of reveals how fallible he is. So the way that, that it's structured and I should say this section of the poem like it's just it's formally like fascinating it is um different than any other romance i've said in, in sort of the hunting is interspersed with these seduction scenes so you'll get sort of a page or two of of the hunt as and then immediately comparing it to gawain essentially being hunted by lady bertilak's wife and i think what's important that comes out of there is that gawain though he does not sleep with lady bertilak he does fail. He um, reveals himself essentially to be a false knight because he takes her belt and does, and then and then breaks his oath to to the Lord and does not hand it over. And sort of that marks him as a coward, and um, and and he has to wear a belt for the rest of his life to sort of as a mark of his shame um, that he did not live up to um to to the full promise of chivalry um so i think that is there is an arc to to the poem it is not it is but it is sort of the unmaking of the perfect knight and and sort of then the reconstruction of of him but as from a from a place of imperfection it is um it is showing the fallibility of chivalry, or specifically the men who try to be chivalrous, I think. More to say on the poem, or should we kind of pivot into talking pre-pro and there's one here? or two things, maybe like um, it begins with like the sack of Troy, the poem, <laughs> like and and and, and like yes, okay, you know, and then he's like, <clears throat> and then they sort of do a Aeneid crossed with like the origin story of Rome in. A few sentences um and, I, and it's just like why but well, it's very interesting i mean you know i mean they they want to 
they situate themselves in this, you know, really grand tradition. And I think, and I think it's, it's kind of jarring when they, they're like, you know, okay, like, so, you know, all these great sons of Romulus, you know, one of the best of these was Arthur. Um, and then they're celebrating um, Christmas. And I know that at this, you know, Christ is, their Christianity is like really intimately associated with the Roman Empire, but like the paganism Christian, like push and pull is one of my favorite like mm -hmm. themes of the movie and the and the poem too and so I, I just thought that was like such a jarring way to foreground it but it might it probably wasn't jarring to contemporary audiences and they um and it also probably helps them just be like like yeah you know like we're you know the sons of the people who sacked troy like you know we're awesome a theme of these arthurian poems i think is their efforts to kind of legitimize the the like camelot or like arthur's court and both like to give it this kind of moral legitimacy to give it this kind of moral legitimacy as like men of virtue and of honor, but also as this like historical legitimacy as like descendants of like the Roman empire or like sort of geopolitical actors in their own way. You know, it's in the Mort Arthur that, uh, Caleb jumping if I got it wrong, but like Arthur sends knights yeah. down to sack Rome. So even though that timeline doesn't really, the Gawain timeline, there is no, there is no King Arthur cinematic universe really, you know, the Gawain timeline and the, more timeline don't really match up, but there is this still sense of that they are located in history. So David Lowry is the is the author of this film. He's both its director and writer. Um, I think he's had an interesting career, and I'm not as familiar with it as I wish I was. I've only seen one of his other films, Ghost Story. But what I think I've seen with him and just sort of looking at his body of work is he's had a real steady climb that... I think a lot of other filmmakers are struggling to do right now where he has started with some very art house indie accolades or sort of bona fides early in his career and has been able to move into the studio system and then pull away enough to be able to get, you know, free reign on an artistic project on a more art house project like this. So, I mean, he is both the uh, Anthem Body Saints to me is maybe his like first kind of breakout film there. He seems to be like garnering some attention and that's, you know, getting like a, a theorist like theatrical run in different cities and then ghost story um, in which he's able to work with some bigger name stars. You're forgetting um, Pete's Dragon. Well, how does, yeah. So how does Pete's Dragon fit? Yeah, does it's, this come before before go, it's ghost 2016 story and I think this is just like generally one of the weirdest, I haven't seen it, just one of the weirdest movies that have been made in the past 10 years. It's a reboot of like a little loved 70s Disney live action Disney movie. Um, mm -hmm. Based on a fucking yeah. Raffi and song I feel or like this movie came and completely disappeared, but maybe I'm just not in touch with, you know, children's filmmaking. But yeah, it's a, a You're not you're not wrong, yeah. So Pete's Dragon does come before that's twenty sixteen, it comes before Ghost Story, and then he has the old man and the gun, but he's gonna be back at Disney for his next film, which is Peter Pan and Wendy, which I guess is like They've done this trick a few times where they try to remake Peter Pan and it just like, what is it? Uh, Joe Wright's got Pan. There's Finding Neverland. If you consider that, there's Hook. You know, it's like, so he's, the, he's swung uh, back where into the, it. Where the of the Southern Wild guys. Yeah, I forgot. And, oh, what's his, that's right. What's his fucking Wesleyan ass name? Ben Zeitlin. <laughs> yeah. Um, but it's I do think what Lowry up. is pulling off here, though, is he's able to kind of filter in and out of the studio system and keep like some like degree of consistency. Whereas like he hasn't, he's not sold out to Marvel yet. Like he hasn't been totally bought into a franchise or anything. But he's doing enough. He's keeping like enough versed in like the Mickey Mouse machine or whatever to stay able to go back and then 
and then make this film, you know, make this make a, a extremely weird singular project. So how many hand jobs do you think there's going to be in uh, Peter Pan? I dude, Hook better shoot fat fucking ropes in that movie. <laughs> God. Uh, it is one of the things that stood like anytime I told people over the summer and they're like, what movies have you seen that are good? I'm like, oh, you know, I think you should check out this The Great Night. It's really weird, but I, I think you would like it or whatever. And people be like, yeah, I saw it. He's just like, a lot of cum. <laughs> <laughs> um, I feel like we have to shout out Brianna Ziegler's uh, piece, The Cream Night. Um, <laughs> one of the better pieces of writing I saw this year. Shut up, Brianna Ziegler. Come on the pod. That would be very legitimizing for y'all. So David Bowery is these, um, I do think he's kind of an interesting, I don't know if I want to call him a conservative filmmaker, even though I think there is actually a very a conservative value system in this movie. Not reactionary, but conservative. Um, but like, he's keeping alive this sort of like filmmaking tradition that we don't necessarily, that is getting eclipsed in the current, in the current studio model. Um, I think his films are about like ghost story in particular is a film about like moral values kind of transcending time and like grief, you know, being a thing that can last centuries. Um, and so there's, I think he's, um, I don't know. There's this like, just like wistful tone, both like in his, in his works and his, and his career trajectory that I find pretty fascinating that I think is, it makes sense. It, it is coherent and cohesive to me on why he sees the Green Knight as like a story that people need to hear in the same way that Romer was like, Percival is a story that French youth need to hear right now in the 1970s. It's an interesting comparison to the like, um, I would say like tested and failed premise that like these indie directors can jump into uh, whatever, um, Captain Marvel and then make something, you know, um, that's but, yeah. Taika. I mean, that's Taika Waititi's life. You know, Taika, he's like, well, Taika he's... just Taika just didn't turn back, and when he turned back, I guess it was to fucking JoJo. Um, he's 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 with the mouse, you know. Like that guy. I mean, he's just going to take a lot of meetings and shoot things. And I mean, I guess he's he's. I was going to make a joke that he's going to work in a warehouse in Atlanta for the rest of his life. That's not true. He's you know doing some admiral work and getting those productions made made in New Zealand, um, but. That guy's that guy's he's, his schedule is pretty booked with the mouse, I think, for the mm-hmm. duration of his career. Nia DaCosta, I'm worried about here, um, but yeah. But anyways, Lowry Lowry is a guy who's worked like yes, Frank stuck like stuck his toe in with the mouse, but basically manages to keep getting his own things funded. I he's he probably works quick and cheap and like has kind of grown up with that A24 niche. Um, I, I wanted to just slip in earlier. I think A24 has like a kind of a $20 million threshold box office brand unto itself at this point. Sure. Um, but it's a good lane but, for him. I mean, also... Sorry, go ahead, Kevin. If I can be... Um, you know, a lot of people have come on this podcast and praised A24, and uh, not to be a contrarian little shit, but what is A24 but the mouse of, you know, independent filmmaking? I mean, sort of... Well, do you get final cut? Sort of... Do the directors get final cut with A24? I mean, that's a big distinction. Uh, I think, I mean, I, I believe they do, but just because mostly they're distributors, but they do uh, certainly um, have fostered a, a house style that I actually now find fairly stifling. Um 
I am worried about the future of independent filmmaking if all it is is A24. I don't... But we don't have to talk about it. No, I, I mean... I mean, I'm happy to take it head on, I guess. Like, I don't, like, disagree, but... Um, but if I'm just, like, looking over the films of this year, like, that they've done that I've liked, which is, like, The Tragedy of Macbeth and The Green Knight and Red Rocket and Zola, like, <laughs> actually formally quite different... Um, so I don't, I don't know. Like, like, like there's like, there should never be like one King, you know, like is, and and that's kind of what I don't like about a 24, but like, especially stuff like letting people shoot in like really boxy aspect ratios, like, um, tragedy of Macbeth or like the lighthouse, which I don't adore the lighthouse, but I admire that. like, I don't know. I can live with it. Okay. I do hear what you're saying though about the, I, 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 I guess, like, I'm going to split the difference and say I agree with both, that there is there is a diversity of style coming out of A24, but there certainly is. Um, Paul Schrader has talked about it, I think, in interviews, as he's like, if you go into a meeting now, you have to pitch an existing IP, a Ugh. superhero, like, adaptation or something. Or he says the third kind you can do, they have some term for it, like, the A24 Alamo film, which is sort of this, like... Like Instagram friendly. That's a, that's a very disrespectful way to put it. But this sort of like one perfect shot Twitter. Yes, sort of. But Paul Schrader's thought of like the one perfect shot visual style that you can go to an Alamo draft house and they can you know there's a reliable twenty something hipster crowd that's going to come and drink an IPA while they watch that movie. Um, and I and I'm saying I'm not saying they're not guilty of it yet. The, the will the the rose is not the bloom is not off the rose for me yet. Although lamb seems to be like a parody of that unintentionally you know it kind of varies from year to year like like again i didn't the lighthouse i think is like way too far up its own ass and like not as much under the under the bones as or under the skin as like it thinks there is but i don't know but then they did uncut gems which is like the greatest movie ever like i don't know um but anyway should we talk about this movie let's talk about this fucking movie yeah (laughs) So we begin with narration that I believe is taken directly from the poem. I'm not sure which specific translation. It didn't quite match up with the James Winnie that I'm reading off of, but um, that describes like, this is the story of King Arthur, like the greatest king in the land. I'm not going to do it justice. And I may just put a drop in to give it that flavor because it's this distorted vocal tone. We have Dev Patel sitting in this like austere throne room by himself before the but crown on his head burst into flame. No, and then we cut to this sort of foggy village morning in which two like people are running, this sort of young woman and man are running out from a village house before it starts to like burst into flame. And we see that this castle is under siege. Those two characters are credited as Helen and Paris. So that is the sack of Troy oh. that is being seen. Which I did oh. not, I did not catch until until you said that just now. That's the sack of Troy that is being done before that shot pulls out further. We see it's in like a Castellan window, like an arrow slit, and then it locks down into Dev Patel, and we realize that it's I think supposed to be kind of his dream projected back onto the world around him. Hell yeah, he's great in this film. I mean, like there's I think there's a lot to praise about this performance, the whole thing. But he starts as just like this young, dumb, and full of cum guy in a medieval. <laughs> In a medieval brothel. How do we feel about this opening? Because this, to me, is this is already such a departure from the from the Arthurian story. Yeah, I think it's, I th- I think it is, um, it is great and is subversive, not in a sort of um, 
in your face way, but I mean, it, we, we are introduced sort of the, the opening narration, you know, this is a story about Arthur at the, not at like sort of the dawn of his reign when he's, you know, seizing power, but Arthur at the peak of his power, you know, when peace reigns over the land. And then the first images that we actually see are a village burning down um, and uh, the nobility running amok and just sort of fucking whatever they want. Um, and it, it sort of, it completely undercuts this very idealized image of of Arthurian romance of what Camelot is, which is, you know, this beautiful era of, of peace and prosperity and, and what life may actually have been in the seventh century of just, uh, you know, all of this, all of this um, storytelling is just that it is a story. And uh, the reality is, is, is much darker and, and the pretensions don't go much farther than the castle walls. Um, in which these poems are read. It's one of my favorite things that can be done about a period piece is to immediately make it like gross and wadi and <laughs> like um, and I and I I think these early sequences in the brothel like I I really like the set of the brothel and the way that it's like designed and shot. It it like manages like the movie is like really dreamlike, which is one of its best qualities and one of the best ways that it like stretches its budget. But like it still feels like a place that just like is reeking in like common piss you know and just like like i'm just like like people are like fucking in beds like next to i mean like people like had less pretensions than we would think that they do you know you could you you could release licorice pizza in medieval europe without a peep of dissent she's too old for him <laughs> the uh yeah i mean just like I, some of these like specific just like wet hay on stone yeah, floors yeah. you know yeah I, my only note i think on how they could improve it is that to make it sort of that sort of like grimy punk aesthetic as if like smells like teen spirit was playing underneath of like the, the warehouse <laughs> opening or the, the, the brothel opening um more dick but <laughs> more dick Sir Gawain, Dev Patel goes to meet his mother, who I guess is 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 Morgan Le Fay. This is kind of yes. uh, this, this is some ambiguity, but I think Lowry in interviews is pretty explicit that, that this character is Morgan Le Fay. This is one of my favorite yeah. things is that it like relies on you to just be like like creepy beard man. Okay, that's Merlin, you know. Mm-hmm. Sorry, go on, Frank. No, but I mean he is at the Knights of the Round Table. It's this amazing set. It's the lighting is unreal in this thing. I was reading, and I'm curious on your take on this, Caleb, because I know you've seen this movie. I think one of the lighting wise, one of the models they had was Chimes at Midnight, the Orson Welles take on um, mm-hmm. a Shakespeare play. I'm not sure. The... It's it's on the the Henry ad, but from Falstaff's perspective. So it's it's it is all of the scenes of of young Henry V before he has become king. But it's it's all from the perspective of his fat, drunk, uh, piece of shit, unknightly friend. Um, so all of sort of the big power politics is in the background, and it's mostly just the story of a friendship and then eventually a betrayal um, when when Henry throws his friend out, and it doesn't make any sense to Falstaff. Anyway, great movie. Do you think the lighting... Is there is there a visual similarity here, or...? Um, well, that's it's the thing. I see it. I think the, the the thing about Chimes at Midnight is that this is it was made at sort of the end of 
Orson Welles' career when he was essentially just like taking handouts from, you know, European benefactors who pitied him. Um, so it, it the, that movie looks very cheap and looks very harsh and very. Um, so so yeah, the the it's it's a lot of very sharp lighting and a lot of sharp shadow and and um, it's not at all comforting. This is not like it's a it's a it's not a joyous feast scene that we have here. You know, no. like it's it's I, stern. A, it's stern. That's a good word for it. Yeah. Um, Sean Harris is playing King Arthur. God, uh, the great. Uh, it's it's Kate Dickey as as Queen Jennifer, as Queen Guinevere. I just misread the castle. Queen Jennifer, no, but um, <laughs> I I am liking how Sean Harris handles this role. I mean, this is one of our. Arthur can be kind of funky in some of these background when he's a background character in some of these, but I think like Sean Harris is doing a very excellent aged kind of decrepit ruler knows like a little bit more than he's letting on, but also doesn't have the total like command and authority beyond maybe like the chair that he's in, in some ways. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Sean Harris is excellent in this movie. Um, So is Kate Dickey. They're just wonderful, wonderful stuff. Great cast across the board, I think. And I think what is, what is interesting about these castings is is that both both of these actors have very very sharp faces, which would make you think that these are going to be sharp and vicious performances to sort of undermine the authority and nobility of Arthur and Guinevere. And they do undermine the authority of Arthur and Guinevere and the idea of chivalry, but from a place of warmth, yeah. and they sort of. The way that Arthur gets Gawain to, you know, embrace his chivalric role as, you know, a servant of the realm is by, ha- you know, sitting him down on his knee and, like, being kind to him. And it sort of, it it cu- sort of cuts through the myth of chivalry, not by saying that, you know, everyone is a bastard and nothing matters, but by saying, you know, the, th- the things that bind each other are not sort of these abstract notions but sort of a, a, a desire to a desire to find acceptance and that is that is what drives Gawain through the rest of the play and um yeah I think mo- this film is is often like many of these these sort of later adaptations of chivalric chivalric works undermining and and, and deconstructing chivalry and this is essentially saying that it's all about chivalry was family um mm. is what it was and and a spoken like a true toretto <laughs> but a a what drives people is is a reluctance to disappoint those mm-hmm. that they love and it's it is interesting that they take that ta- that warm tack in a film that is often so brutal and so ice cold um but yeah what do you guys think yeah, I think that's the read of it. Like, there's a I I'll, I'll I'll hold my hand a little here, but I've got kind of I have my reading on what I think honor kind of is in this movie and, and what it's saying about it. Um, but yeah, I think you're right. There's a lot in Kate Dickey saying um, yet you have none to tell yet. You know, um, mm-hmm. I think it's genuine. It's it's inspiring to anybody, really. You know, like like and it just it just situates you within Gawain and his like kind of halting perspective being gently encouraged. I, I think it's really terrific. Then the fucking green giant comes in. 
Sorry, the Green Knight. The Green Giant is the frozen foods purveyor, but uh, the Green Knight. Yeah. Um, concurrently, Mama Morgan is doing some very cool pagan magic shit. Um, we can we can pick up that thread later, but I mean the Green Knight's entrance. I mean it's this amazing costume that he's got on. It's this huge presence. The way that the color, the temperature changes in the room by just these switches to green lights and the candles dousing out and like whatever. You didn't realize how much warmth you had in the scenery until it's all extinguished and there is just no red or amber tones anywhere. It's just this like cold green on the stone walls and floor. Um, before he issues the Christmas game challenge. Strike me a blow with this axe, and I will return it to you in one year hence. It's the A24, the mayor of A24. Yeah, Ralph is the mayor. <laughs> He's got the, the best voice in the game. Um, Seriously. Yeah. I want to see him do some different commercials, maybe. Like, just like, Arby's, we have the meat. Oh, my like... God. Do <laughs> you know who uh, opens up the talking in the, the tragedy of Macbeth? Is it innocent again? Yeah, it's fucking innocent. He rolls up, delivers a few lines, immediately dies. But I was just like, thank you for introducing the movie to me. <laughs> they should have him do the, like, welcome back to the movies, the place oh my of magic. Dude, I mean, everybody knows him as Dagmar. Heartbreak feels good in a place like this. <laughs> yeah, I, Ted, talk about this magic, though, if you if if you want to bring up the Morgan. Because the, the, the intercutting between the two, you can't... There's not one without the other here. Yeah, I mean, I, here I think begins a series of parallels or that do not cleanly fall on a teams. Um, but there is, I think, a paganism Christians. Like, so the Green Knight is an incursion into Christmas, you know, um, and he is. Um, I think, but you know, he's a pagan incursion into Christmas, uh, which is, uh, uh, I have a side here, um, and it's not um, the, the Christians. Um, like, so I think that's cool. I also think it's obviously tied to ecology and um, just like a, and with, you know, his green blood makes the uh, whatever stuff grow in the, in the court. Um, and then the, so, I mean, the magic is cool because, like, magic is cool. It's just cool to see, like, a fire floating in air or something and just, like, people in weird costumes saying bizarre shit, you know. Um, it's, it's, it's just, it's cool. But then, I, I you know, we're saying that, like, Gawain, there, there are so many reasons that Gawain manages to, like, go on his journey. And one of them is, I mean, some of them are that he grows and some of them are that Arthur and Aunt Gwen were nice to him. One of them is that his mom casts this, like, spell to start this thing off for him. Uh, rather like Lady Jessica did uh, to Paul Atreides in another very good film from this year, Dune. Mm. Um, and I just, like, like, so, I mean, like, like what I... It's one thing that I really like about both Dune and this is, like, like, like whenever you've got, like, the one, you know, that's a bit of an issue, you know, um, which the Wachowskis knew 20 years ago. Um, and so you have to make that part of, you, you have to foreground or, or it helps or it can help to foreground the construction of the one and they're the, the like hero on the hero's journey and like, which is just like more realistic and it's just like makes it more clear that like, like, yeah, every road is paved with many stones, you know? 
so do you read this as intentional? Because in for for context in the in the poem, it's revealed at the very end that Morgan Le Fay was the mastermind behind it all. Yes, um, and that she did so in a, in an attempt to scare Guinevere to death and to humiliate Arthur's knights because, of course, Morgan Le Fay hates her brother. Um, and I've read sort of. Um, I've, I've, I read an interview with David Lowry where he said, like, this is sort of relates to my life and sort of what I feel like my when my mother had to like push me out of the nest because he says he's sort of a late bloomer. But I think at the the end of this sequence, when when um, Gowan rises to the occasion and cuts the Green Knight's head off, uh, Morgan Le Fay seems collapse in what could could be fatigue, but also kind of strikes me as as grief and that her attempts to humiliate her brother and and sort of all of the sort of Christian chivalric pretensions is going to end up with her son's death. And she didn't mean for that to happen. Um, but maybe that is my own reading. And I, if, if you read it. It's probably, otherwise. I mean, you know the poem better than me. That, that just like adds up, you know. Um, but, I, you know, two things could be true at once. And... Um, yeah, the I I thought that was like a like, I, I yeah I mean in the movie, both times I saw it I thought it was just like a like Luke used too much of the Force and um, now he's gonna die um, sort of logic you know uh -huh. which is fine um, but yeah I mean it's it it does yeah that might be, and it sort of complicates so it more I, I guess being better... an accident you know. I, I guess a better question is why does Morgan do this? Is it just purely a inspiration to her son to you know give him a kick in the pants, or do you think there is sort of a paganism v Christianity read to this inciting incident? So I think there's definitely a paganism v Christianity read of just like as Ted's you said, pagan presence intruding on Christmas. So I do think that that honor. Which is, this is what King Arthur says to, to Gawain as he steps up to grab the axe. Remember, boy, it's just a game. And, like, honor is, for almost everyone in this movie, a performance more than an actual, like, lifestyle and, like, it exists internally. So I think, and I think Morgan Le Fay is guilty of this, is, like, she wants to stimulate and kind of create opportunity for honor, but she doesn't, I don't believe that she wants it to go the full way. Well, obviously, you know, she gives him the sash that will protect him until the final stroke. Like, this is, I think everyone is kind of, there's a sense that maybe everyone in that room, every other night at the table, has had some quest of some stature like this that, as that final kind of 15-minute dream sequence suggests, they actually showed cowardice at the last possible second, and that's why they live to be seen as an honorable person rather than actually be one. So that's my feeling, that it does go, like, she is pushing him out of the nest, but then he flies a lot further than she thought that she would have planned on, even to his own demise. Okay. I, I don't think of her as being especially warm to her son, though. I'll I'll say that. I mean, I it, it I mean, I I think if she's pushing him out of the nest, it's not like it's it's really just to get him out of the nest, you know. Um, but I mean, I, I it's it's still it, it is hard for me to decouple that from her from the the, the the paganism of it and also the um environmentalism of it. Um are we, I mean, his departure, the journey, I'm realizing we're like an hour in and there's... So I think that the last thing we should talk about, Alicia Vikander. Mm, yeah. Yeah. 
So one of my big takes of this movie is that like like fuck all of this. Like when Essel says like why don't you just like marry me, and it's like yeah, like the end. You know that's a, that she's like like why do you have to be like great? Can't you just be like good? You know. And she's just like saying like 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 fuck this, you know, bullshit. I'm like, in case you haven't noticed, Alicia Vikander. Um, and I, I and I I thought that was, I thought I thought that was like moving and and an argument for I, this movie is really slippery. I think it's really hard to come down on one thing on whether this journey was worth it or not. And I think this is a really interesting bit of like a really compelling argument for like, don't bother with any of this nonsense. Yeah. Well, I, I, I think, and we sort of talk about how, how, um, honor is slippery and often just a performance, but there is a reading that it is dishonorable to, uh, Gawain is as, as Arthur's, um, only nephew. He has no son. He is the heir to the throne. Um, it is it would in in to to the people in his life be seen as dishonorable to forego that responsibility and run off with some you know with a tavern wench where it is also clearly in his interaction with Alicia Vikander deeply 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 dishonorable to abandon her and so I think I do think there is a I think it is a little too easy just to say that you know none of this matters, leave it all behind, you know, run off to the woods. Um, because there are, there are still people left behind affected by that decision. And, and, and it is, I think this film is, is always saying that it's, there is no single honor. There is no single morality or, or correct choice that every, every choice is an act of courage and an act of cowardice. Um, and nothing is neat. And, uh, all there is is interpretation. You know, it's I mean, it's a, it's a very dreamy quality of the film, as you've talked about, Ted, but I think Lowry has a com terrific command of the audience's, like, sense of place within that dream, and you see it in the that technique of the bell that she gives, that Essel gives him, and it's him ringing the bell as he's on the journey that triggers the memory back to that and then into the present again. And I, even in the first watch, you're just like, this is like this is a flashback. I like I, I understand the the direction that we're going in here. Uh, Mary Keoghan, is that our next stop? Yeah. How does anybody have the definitive answer on how to say the man's name? I think. Oh, good question. I assume. I, that... it, I feel like it could be like Keegan. You know, like I think it's Cowan because that's just the Americanized version. Okay, but I just. Because, like, that's how it's spelled for... At what point do you think in his life that he looked in the mirror and, like, made peace with the fact that even at, like, age 30, he was just going to play fucked up 17-year-olds for the rest of his <laughs> life? Unbelievable. Um, I mean, he's, like, he's raking in the bills. He's... Dude, have you heard the... Ah, yeah, you don't give a shit, Frank. Uh, apparently, he's, like, maybe going to be the Joker um which... oh of the next batman series yeah. well what's his what's his name in it's like squinty or like guan 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 show or what the fuck is his name in the internals gun oh uh uh druig yeah he was okay. by far the best uh part of the eternals caleb do you have data on his name pronunciation or are we still in the no i let's just it, it, 
we'll just we'll, we'll figure it whatever let me you're, say this here fucking irish who cares barry yeah. keegan if you don't like the way we said your name come on the pod we'll talk it <laughs> oh, out man that would yeah you have to leave your zoom camera off because i don't really want to look at your face <laughs> when we do it, but... i think i think he's handsome <laughs> um he rules he rules in this film so it should be yeah like, like you said at the beginning in the the poem yada 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 is all of this part so everything in the next hour of the film essentially is the inv- yes. is the invention of um of david lowry so we're in full lowry, we're in full yeah. adaptation mode and it, it's just so odd that well not or whatever it's interesting but that the poem yada 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 is this when that would you would think be very populist entertainment but I don't know. Maybe not. Well, I think partly because of the way that... So I think you can read this interaction between Barry Keoghan, who's this... Keegan. Sorry. Okay, I'm going to stick to what it's Keegan this time. Barry Keegan, who's this like teenage sort of child, the scavenger amid this battlefield and this wreckage. And this is not dissimilar to how Percival meets the knights in the Percival quest and he's like dazzled by their presence and like the shine of their armor and that's what inspires him to go lead this more honorable life and partly I think it's through Goyne's failure to inspire confidence or show some like generosity and compassion to this to this small folk or whatever but like I don't know Barry Keegan he's like um he's like red-pilled or something like he's like he sees knighthood and honor as just like in a chance to exert violence and like that's you know he's celebrating the carnage on this battlefield even when it struck his own family you know it's like when the semi-criminal poor whites like still have cop worship you know well I think both him and the ghost in the next sequence all like in like different ways kind of like question Gawain's um like they literally directly question like his gallantry or chivalry, I guess. Like, like, like. I think it. Like, I don't think that. I think Keegan was gonna attack him either way, but it means something that he's like, like, what? You're not gonna give me any fucking money, you know? Mm-hmm. I think also what's important is, I mean, he, he is the kind of person who reads or or at least hears romances, consumes medieval romances, and is attracted to the questing part when he's talking about. The battle, which David Lowry has said is supposed to be the Battle of Baden, which is sort of the, the the high point of the Arthurian legend. That's when Arthur defeats the Saxons and single-handedly kills 960 people, which is sort of the number that, that Barry says. He's like, isn't that fucking sick? Like, the king was here. Wait, how? Arthur is, like, in a bed in this Because it's all bullshit. It's, but, and it's... Okay. And I think <laughs> that is what's... The fact that they meet on this on this battlefield, all of the bodies have been left unburied. You know, there's no ceremony to any of it. All of sort of the great, all of the stories are just that. It's just stories, and 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 Barry is is the reality because he's just uh, some sick orphan kid who is half insane. Um, you know, partying amongst the corpses of his. <laughs> of his brothers and that's what life actually is outside of these walls where they're telling these masturbatory masturbatory stories to each other the um the clear cutting that uh gawain rides by on the early part of his journey i think is a little bit of that too like like they're just like 
kind of a bulldozer is what Arthur's conquest has been. Mm. <laughs> yeah, I think of this movie, one of the things it really fits into the Arthurian canon of other Arthurian movies. And I think it is kind of in dialogue with Bresson, with Excalibur, with Percival, like with the other ones that we've covered in this series. Yeah, there's... Um, because that is... There, so there's there's that one sh- with the first body that... that um... Uh, that that Gowan rides past is like a, a single body slumped against a tree with arrows sticking out, which is like I think almost, like pulled almost exactly from from Last Light Lock, the the Bresson, um, who depicts the 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 final battle is mostly just guys sitting in trees shooting arrows at each other, and it's so unromantic. This is also filmed in the same part of Ireland that much of Excalibur was filmed, the the Borman film. Gawain is taken prisoner by Barry Keegan and the uh, the sort of other scavenger bandits. Um, they tie him up in the woods, they smash his seal and steal the axe and horse. Um, I love the way that Barry Keegan, he even, he, he, they've robbed, they've robbed Gawain and then he robs his companions by grabbing the axe and horse and he's like, I'm off to be a knight now, you know, I think that's totally like, <laughs> it's got that amazing, it does that 360 degree this is sort of, it's a very complicated effect that they've done here. It's the camera moves 360 degrees using visual effects. They've also put in time-lapse footage of the tree lines. And so you're actually seeing the moss and leaves kind of die and fade away very gently through this shot before circling back to now, like Gawain's body is a skeleton. He has died. And then you sort of blink out of it and wake up and, and Dev Patel's trying to yeah, set himself I think free. This, th- that sort of like circularity comes up again and again, and I think that's a play on sort of the concept of the Wheel of Fortune, not the Pat Sajak game show. Um, do you have Do you have notes on this? <laughs> no, just say more because we missed it earlier, and it's one of my favorite times. Yeah, because yeah. there's earlier we we see the sort of the puppet show and sort of the turning of the seasons, and then several points of, of the course of the film, the camera actually does a 360 degree. It's not. I don't know what to call that that movement because it's not a tilt, and it's it's. Well, it's doing it when it, in this shot, it's doing yes, it on the X yes, axis, and in that one, it's doing along the uh, Y yeah. axis. I don't like clockwise. The Z axis, I think. Okay, but it's it is. Or what about the one where it ups? Yeah, yeah but it, it's it's this was a, an idea. It's not directly pulled from the poem, but this was a sort of popular motif in medieval theology and medieval literature and medieval art generally. Is this this idea of the wheel of fortune that, um, which is tied to time and to aging and to the seasons that. That people are are born and accumulate um, worldly power, and then have that power arbitrarily ripped from them, and sort of there is no direct correlation to moral goodness into to to one's circumstance. That it's all tied to this to to this wheel and to sort of the arbitrary turnings of it by a supernatural force that no one can understand or control and that sort of the only deliverance is I said through God um through through faith in in God is sort of, sort of the Christian reading though this also dates back to sort of Roman times but I think Lowry is is playing with that so does the quest matter does any of this matter if we're all sort of bent to this wheel that just keeps turning no it's a very it's a very capricious worldview um and um and it all, and it's also like works like like this is also a story about storytelling, mm-hmm. you know, um, and I think it just like he's so often 
and he does this in spades at the end, um, like suggesting other ways that this can go, you know, um, like Essel suggests a way this camera. Sure. This awesome, awesome camera move suggests a way, you know, and we'll get to the mm-hmm. end, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and he's, he's running on it. Is this where he finds the foxes in the woods here on this first part? Yeah. yeah. On the way yeah. to the lake. So he cuts himself out of this um, out of this bonds that he has, and he's got nothing. He's got his cloak, and he's just running through the woods, stomping before this CGI fox stumbles into the clearing and, and follows him for the rest of the film. Yeah. So this this fox is is pulled from the hunting sequence in the in the poem, which sort of gets put in fast forward mode um, in in the film. But I think this the fox is a a reference to um, what I, I mentioned before another popular character Reynard the fox who is this sort of lowborn trickster and Ted what you were saying is this film is always presenting sort of other ways the stories can end and sort of other patterns of behavior that Gawain can take and I think the fox is another one because the fox is presented as sort of the opposite to another thing that gets hunted which is the boar. So when when the boar is being hunted, the boar, like a knight, turns and fights. And of course gets killed. Where the fox the next day is a trickster and it doubles back on itself and it 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 pulls pranks and it is having a grand old time running away from its hunters. But in the end, and 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 at the end of the film, eventually the fox, you know, tells Gawain to just pull a prank and and you know go back and tell everyone you did it and I'm not going to tell anyone and everything will work out fine. And I think what's important in the poem, the fox's tricks work for a while, but it is hunted and it is killed. And so there, there is always the same end um, for all of the things in in this world. So to to be Reynard the fox, to be this trickster, to abandon sort of this these noble ideas of chivalry and and literally the idea of nobility is not going to save Gawain either. Um, it's another it is another way out, but it all comes to the same end, which is you know, which is death and perhaps disgrace. He has found Renaud the trickster fox, and they run off to uh, this abandoned house. Yeah. Uh, Gawain helps himself and tries to f- helps himself in, tries to find anyone. There's nobody there. Sleeps in this bed until he is suddenly awoken by this sort of floating young woman, Saint Winifred, um, who commands her to, you know, chastises him for sleeping in her bed and, you know, inserting himself in a lady's manner without asking permission, and then orders him to pull her head out of a lake. At which point, you sort of realize that she is a ghost or this sort of non-worldly presence um so ghosts are cool (laughs) and just like dreamy mood lighting also uh the actress is erin kellyman uh who has emerged mostly in mouse context um i think i first saw her in solo a star wars story which she was one of the better parts of and then she was in the falcon and the winter soldier which was deeply awful um but she was good in all those things and she's very good here um i think just a cool face a really good presence um and has this like moral authority like i think that she asked him to get his her there's a lot to talk about she asked him to get her head out of the lake and he's like 
well, okay, what are you going to do for me? And she's like, you're a fucking knight. Like, why would, she's, why would you ask me that? Yeah. How can you ask me that? You know? Um, and it's just like a direct challenge to... Um, I mean, it, it, it challenges him to be selfless. Um, and he does so. Um, and gives her a... Well, she's dead. But, like, is an alternate ending for her of the story where somebody comes barging into her house, rapes and kills her, you know? Um, a person so, who may have, for all we know, identified as a knight or a person of honor in that. A hundred, a hundred percent. A hundred percent, yeah. I think um, explicit. So, I mean, it's... it's. I think explicitly but, is a knight. And she, she keeps asking Gawain if it was him. So, you know, again, there is sort of this... This equation that we've talked about before on this on this podcast with sort of knightlyhood as inherently violent and often indiscriminate in its violence. Um, and, you know, it's and and um, deeply tied to masculinity. Um, and yeah, I don't know. But again, sort of a an attack on on the, tr the traditional idea of, of knightlyhood and chivalry in this film. But go ahead, Ted. Uh, no, I said all. I mean, I really love the sequence. I, I, I love the underwater lighting. Um, I, I the other thing is like the framing of this is like like his journey is like. I mean, he he's very cold. He's been just falling down cliff sides, and it's it's very wet, and he's carrying this huge fucking axe around, and like, so it kind of sells the like like from his perspective, the like like look, I really need a house, man. You know. Dev Patel is great in this movie, and it's actually I'm watching it the second time. It's a very, it's a lot of it's kind of wordless performance, or at least he's performing off of. It's just kind of reaction to to phenomena more than like actual conversations he gets to have, and he really sells this arc of by the time he gets to the manor at the end, the Lachlan's manor is that the name in the poem or? It's um, sorry, give me a sec. It's okay. No, Bertilac. Right if you don't have it, the Bertilac. Thank you. So by the end, once he gets to Bertilac's manor, and he actually has some sort of credibility and honor and sort of self-respect, like that comes across, and you've been able to chart that change in him again just through things like posture and just how he responds to like mud and nature. You know, it's a, it's a, it's maybe my favorite performance of the year, and I kind of didn't recognize that until I watched it a second time here. No, he's on the ballot for sure. He's going to talk giants. Um, this, I mean, I love that. Oh, yeah. I mean, that's like, it's just cool that there is this fantasy world here. There's a moment where he eats the mushrooms and it looks like he's going to like hallucinate or something. And that I don't like that moment. I think that's stupid just because like this movie is already hallucination. We just exist in that space. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, it's like, it's like, come on, Lowry. Like you're not, and maybe that isn't kind of how it's meant to be read, but that's how it sort of appears to me. These giants are cool they're naked stone women just walking off into the distance and it's sort of the world feels it makes it i mean obviously it's big it's a sense of scale you know that's accomplished here but this is a very like big and weird world around him still it it evokes but they're also i mean they're walking you know away and they don't take him with them or he that moment where he just sort of they seem to be like i don't know if if they're malevolent or not, but she's just like saying hello, and then he sort of falls away, and she's like, "Okay, you know." 
and they walk off. This, um, the dogs, the fox saves him, I believe. Yes. Right? Isn't, you know, uh, yeah. He yells, and I think she sees a bug on the counter, is going to slap it with her fist until the dog, you know, howls at her and, and, you know, says, leave this one be. Right. That complicates it. I mean, I, for me, this sequence evokes, I think, the, the great feeling of, of Tolkien, which is a really beautiful. Not better, but a different world slipping beneath our fingertips as this um, authoritarian Christianity, etc., advances. Which is another one of my things that I like about like the Vinland sagas, and is that is that tension? Oh, I, th- um, I think it's there, Ted. I mean, they're walking into the mist. That could be the Elysian Fields like, or the the Elder Lands or whatever they're called in the in Tolkien's world. The... It's like sailing off into the west, yeah. But I, I, I mean, I, I, I that's a potent feeling i think um like it doesn't really go anywhere because you know like 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 what are you like what am i going to become an ant activist you know but it's a potent feeling can i um can i come out with a bit of a hot take get the giants the fuck out of here i don't want them around those guys are scary as hell (laughs) and if it requires if if accepting jesus christ as my personal lord and savior is the thing that saves me from getting squished (laughs) by a fucking bald ass alicia vikander then you know, uh, hello Jesus. That shit is <laughs> freaky. I don't want it. Um, magic, no thanks. Get it out. <laughs> wow, that is that is a hot take. But the magic remains. The magic, the magic lives on for a little bit longer in this film. I guess. I mean, it depends on what you think of. True. It depends on what you think of a camera existing in the medieval times. If that is a magic or not, or you know, like I don't know how that fits in the pagan Christian debate. I, the house is a real enigma. I mean, he arrives like tired and exhausted at this house. Joel Edgerton is dabbing a cloth on his head and, and waking him up and sort of gives him like, you can rest here for a while. The end of your journey is just around the next hill. This place, I don't, I don't, there's parts of this place that I have a reading on and an understanding of, but it's like, it's, it's a very confusing setting. It doesn't, it doesn't easily code like the Barry Keegan scene to me as just like as as how to like I don't I don't have an immediate reading on a lot of parts of this house. Um, yes, the the castle, Bertilax castle. Yeah, I mean, namely, so it's, I think Ted was it you who mentioned. So you see the woman in the cloth that follows Alicia Vikander around. That this is yeah. You think that this is Morgana or like a manifestation of of Morgana? I I I I, I, I do and and. As a part of that, she gives him the sash back that Barry uh, that Barry Keegan took, and so like, which it's it's like, you know, like like she kind of came in and gave him like some extra mana. <laughs> yeah, yeah, uh... yeah. So, I think what is so in 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 the poem, we again we don't get any of the outside bits, the traditional sort of romantic adventure, and we return Gowan to the domestic space. And test him there. And I think that is sort of this is his real test, is sort of the the, the of whether he can be um if he can be domesticized, um, or or if he can sort of maintain his domesticity now that he has experienced deprivation and uh and has seen cruelty um for the first time in his very sheltered life. And I think that is what it is. And and if we if we are going to read sort of this this quest as sort of being pushed out of the nest, 
And I, I agree with Ted that I think the old lady that who no one acknowledges is is Morgan Le Fay. It's confirmed in the poem that that is Morgan who is watching it. But she is the the external test is complete. Now it's sort of the domestic test, and then at the end is sort of the the moral test. And and but I so that's how I I read this is um is whether he can exist within the framework of this sort of restrictive Christian world that is increasingly taking over. So this sequence I felt like diverged from the book or the poem the most, um, or as, I mean, apart from the stuff that is just made up, but um, I, I, and I think the question and where the text is like really slippery and I'm not quite pinned down on it is the question of recontextualizing like what is at stake in that scene um or in that extended sequence and um in the poem when i read it i mean i i thought it was pretty cut and dried like you know can he walk this tightrope successfully and like yes he can you know um i think there is a question though i think the way that the movie recontextualizes Bertilac and his wife, Lady Bertilac, I guess, um, is, like, maybe they would, like, they weren't really testing him so much as, like, they just wanted him to, like, be a swinger with them, you know? And, and I, I mean that sincerely, yeah. like, 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 and, and, and I mean, I, I think the, the, like, sincere emotion in the Edgerton kiss, uh, to Dev Patel, um, is, um, well, I think it's sincere, I guess, is the whole... Like, like, I think that, like, they... they um, I mean, I, I, I think they're challenging him, and I think they're... And I think then when Vikander gives her big speech about how, like, the green will return and, you know, um, it, it's older than you and it'll be here after you, um, which uh, I think kind of allies them or does some work to ally them with this, like, parallels of, like, paganism and ecology and magic versus anti-environmentalism, authoritarianism, and Christianity. And because I am so clear as to where I stand on that, which is paganism and environmentalism, is, and it's like, it's like the only thing I find like holy is like that plants will somehow survive the nuclear apocalypse, you know? Um, so... So I, it's, but, but it's, it's not really clear to me if the film thinks that like, that's where he should land. And like, I don't really understand. I, I, I think there's a few ways to read her call saying that he's not a knight after he, uh, jizzes. Um, I, I'm not really sure what she's chastising him for there, like his weakness in jizzing or in not, not enough come even attempting, not pleasuring her or not, you know, <clears throat> I, anyways, I mean, I, um, I think it is that he, it's, it's, it's his admittance, he admits that he wants the belt, um, I think is what makes him not a knight. He wants the protection and therefore he wants to break his word, um, to receive the blow. And I think, and I don't necessarily think that you are not a knight is so much an insult as a um an accurate read um mm. chivalry is not for you 
um, there are other things that you want other than an honorable death that will make Uncle Arthur proud of you. Um, and I think, you know, I it is a test, but I don't necessarily think one that Gawain fails and more of... Um, it's more of a, you know, uh, 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 what's it called? The, you know, you get INTJ. It's more of a Meyer Briggs type of test, you know? <laughs> Meyer Briggs. Because there is a, the exchange, it's directly, we should maybe sink into this green poem that, that Alicia Vikander reads for a bit, but the exchange immediately after that, um, Jill Edgerton is asking him, like, so, like, what is the purpose of this quest? And Gwen is still unsure, you know, Dev Patel's still playing that uncertainty of, like, I will get honor, I think. And he's like, oh, like, you're not honorable now, but you will get it once you meet this guy and do this single task. Like, I look very much forward to seeing honorable you after doing one thing to fix whatever's not you now. <laughs> I, I, I like that. That is just categorizations. And it's not that the film isn't meant to be. It's, it's temptation away from honor, but that doesn't mean it's, like, sinful or wrong, necessarily. Um. So the green poem, it's like two and a half minutes long. I can't do the whole drop because I think A24 is going to like D- DMCA our episode. Send, send a drone strike. Yeah, basically. Um, but they only have $20 million to do it with. So <laughs> it's going to need, you need, you need mouse money to kill me, baby. But um, Frank's got bunkers. <laughs> I met an Albanian at, I, at a New Year's celebration. I had this guy from Albania over and I was like, he's like, I'm from Albania. And I was like, oh, bunkers. And he's like, yes. <laughs> We have a lot of bunkers in Albania. You are correct. <laughs> That's deeply insensitive that you said that. <laughs> no, I mean he thought it, he. I think. Yeah, right. I think he was glad that people knew it, and then he was like, "Yeah, I've got friends who are like they have this bunker near a hydroelectric dam where they siphon energy and mine crypto in it." And I was like, "God damn, that's the most post-Soviet shit ever." Oh my god. All right, here is the Green Knight monologue. I, again, I, maybe we, maybe the three of us can get the full two and a half minutes here if we want it, but maybe just the first 40 seconds just to give us a little taste or something. Sure. The green is the color of earth, of living things, of life. And of rot. Yes. Yes. We deck our halls with it and dye our linens. I should have come creeping up the cobbles. We scrub it out fast as we can. When it blooms beneath our skin, we bleed it out. And when we together all find that our reach has succeeded our grasp, we cut it down. We stamp it out. We spread ourselves atop it and smother it beneath our bellies. But it comes back. It does not dally. Nor does it wait to plot or conspire. Pull it out by the roads one day, and the next there it is. Creeping in around the edges. Whilst we're off looking for red, in comes green. Yeah, I think Ted, you're right that this is invoking like an ecological, like a primordial a thing that exists existing before and maybe after humanity. It's like a, a it's also like a, a Taoist humility about your place in the world, um, which I, I, I it, it, it just basically is my worldview. So um, 
or what I th would like it to be. Um, so it's it's difficult for me to be impartial about this, you know. Well, and I think it's part of the strength of the movie is that you don't have to be, you know, that it is like there is. Mm -hmm. I think the I I do think that Gawain does something pretty noble and brave at the end, and I sort of I I I resonate with his choice that he makes in the end of this film maybe more than other alternatives he's given, but I don't think that there's anything wrong with that. I guess you know. I mean, by the time he's gotten there, he makes a real strength of character choice, you know, like decoupled from this like ideological battleground that I've been laying out, you know, like, like, like once he's got there, he saw that one vision of his life, which was awful and rejected it, you know? Um, so and it's, I don't know who was saying this, but it, it doesn't matter where you die, you know, you could be die the green knight could behead you you could die at the end with um usurpers at your doors you could die shackled to a tree because barry keegan fucked you up um so i, I mean i think he makes a, I think he makes a noble choice at the end i i don't disagree with that to like choose death rather than have it thrust upon him kind of yeah that's always well not always but often, it's loaded it, yeah, it's it evokes loaded. yeah yeah, yeah. Yeah, I, I think what's fascinating about this speech that, that she gives about Green is it is sort of about chivalry and sort of a medieval way of thinking, but also I think generally just the way that people structure their lives. They, you know, we we scrub the green away from, you know, the buildings that we build and we, you know, remove it from our bodies whenever we can. And it's, it's I think what this, what this film is saying is, like kind of Ted you're intimating is that you know all of these processes and ways of living that we construct to sort of separate ourselves from sort of the innate animalness and and, and naturalness of of life is inherently um futile um the green will always be there and it, and it will always come back but I don't necessarily if 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 Vikander or this film is saying that that futility is um, useless, um, and there is perhaps um, nobility in continuing to try to not necessarily that rising above, I, I don't want to put a moral weight on and saying rising above sort of the state of nature, but but there does the just because honor is artificial and and unnatural does not mean it is um a bad in in whatever form that honor takes which is inherently defined by us and not by sort of any greater power or, or the world above that there is still that choice to make whether to to seek it or not and i and that sort of that is i think this the central um uh, pursuit of this film is is interrogating whether whether or not it's honorable to be honorable, but um, no, I don't know. I think it's. I think it is fascinating I, that 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 Lowry just kind of just takes the gloves off and kind of lays out um, the entire film in this two minute speech. Um, I can't. I think I like it, but it is sort of. It does kind of. Uh, you know, it does kind of uh, 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 lessen my homework load. Well. So, 
I think that's it, Caleb. And you're right that this pure, like, I guess in the current context, this sort of like pure surrender to like whatever the earth will do is a very like moral choice that we could make right now. Um, but it's also, it's cynical, you know, in a way. And, and, and then, and, and when you tie it to the like, possible violence or eroticism not that eroticism is wrong age gap like (laughs) but it's yeah it's like there is there there is definitely something cynical about just being like like oh yeah just like do whatever you want nothing matters you know like like but that's kind of like it's kind of like twilight of the idols isn't it like 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 everybody sucks but like make your own you know do you know that like like he's he's like like fuck Socrates, fuck Jesus Christ, fuck the Buddha, fuck all those guys, but you be your like make your own moral compass, you know? Um anyways. I um I wanna also talk maybe about the the scene in the book room and the photograph that's made, because I think that this this is a movie about storytelling and it's actually very, it is very invested, I think, in just the, the, the layers and retellings of the Green Knight that it is itself a part of. Metatextual, I, it's a meta film, undeniably. Um, we have seen Gawain's story already get kind of retold and mistold in the story, in the film as we see it, you know, when he's in the, in the very, you know, the first act when he's, um gets drunk in a bar and this guy grabs him and is like, dude, I heard that like, you cut off his head with his own act and like just like it's just getting details wrong about what has happened in this in this scene already and Gwen is like rejecting that his own story is being told back to him and the the puppet shows the puppet shows that's making like a mockery of or like turning it into this source of like mirth and entertainment even though it's i think an underrated i think an undercurrent of this film is the absolute like desperation and sadness of this horrible quest to have to go march across the country to die um and then the Vikander breaks into this room full of books and says, like, if I change books if I don't think they have what I want in them. I take out pages, I replace them, I remove things. What would you like to say for this photograph for me? She has this, you know, it's camera obscura, basically, that done in medieval 1500s technology. But she gets a photograph of him. And so there's I, this sort of... I don't, I don't know if Lowry is either endorsing the earlier changes in storytelling or if he's enjoying that film gives you a final fixed image of storytelling or if that the final fixed image is not final and that it can still be changed and misinterpreted or, or reimagined. Well, I, I think the, the thing about a photograph is, is that it's fixed in time. And, and so later when we see the photograph hanging above, you know, Gawain in, in his throne room, in his vision of, of what it would be to be king, it sure. is suddenly the Gowan is entirely different. You know, the Gowan in the photograph is proud and young and handsome, and the one on the throne room is a, a broken coward and um, a vicious little, a, a, a vicious twerp idiot who's killed everyone around him. And the photograph is no longer an accurate depiction. So I. I I don't know that film represents sort of an end to the interpretation and to the story. It is only sort of much like these books, just another another way to um, to control perception for a small period that will then again be reinterpreted later on. 
it's no more final than than the books. I think it's definitely what he's commenting on that contrast with the picture, Frank. But but yeah, I mean, this is a story about like how the story is always going to change um, and could go many ways and will go many ways in the future. You know, I, I love that he. I mean, his title and these amazing title cards in this film. The first one is that um, it's. Mm. Uh, uh, <clears throat> go in in the green night, a film adaptation based on a poem by anonymous. And this soul, like, I love that. I love that. The title cards are great. I was, I was watching an interview with the designer of them whose name I don't have in front of me now, but, um, they're sort of, he says the design of them, one is influenced by just all of these old poems and books that they were just looking at and trying to evoke that time period, but also that they're non-traditional title cards and that rather than just being text laid over an image or against a black screen, they're actually built into the composition of the image is kind of their, their intention. And they said it's more like a magazine layout than just uh, what we typically think of as a title card. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're, they're great. Like they're just, I, I love it. You know, you're ne- you can never forget that this film is based on a poem while you're watching it. I feel. I like artists, like modern day artists paying reverence to like, truly unknown ancient forebears um like Herzog's cave of forgotten mm. dreams is like this on a much larger time scale but no i, I yeah it, it's it, it's a, a direct acknowledgement of adaptation like i mean it says an adaptation you know and the the idea of adaptation is one of the most important just like themes of this movie End of life, which is why you should subscribe and continue listening to Best Adapted Podcast, available wherever I guess found. Um, <laughs> if you've made it to hour two of this fucking shit, you probably are down to listen to more. Should we go into maybe the dream, the the vision of the future? Can we leave the castle? Is there more to say about the castle? Or I don't think so. There is so much more hunting in the pulp than there is in the movie. Was something that really struck me this morning. Like. Um, and I, I, I mean, Caleb's given me a lot more to stew on. I thought it was oh, so boring, like in the in the poem, like like. No, you, I I, I was not giving it credit, but but I was just like like okay, like, then a bunch of dogs tore the animal apart, you know, it's like, I just, you know, but um, but there is very little hunting in the movie, and that just is a, is a huge change. And um, do you think that's a loss, Caleb? I guess is what I was. Uh, do I think it's at. a loss? No, because I think it's. I think it's interested in in different things. I think the the poem is very much about so the the importance of the of the knight as a, a figure of domesticity and how it's not all it's not all hunting. Um, I think it's important that that Gawain is specifically not out there with Bertilak as he is hunting these animals, and then also it's sort of. Um, but it's I I mean I think that poem is is fascinating like structurally in sort of the way that it cross cuts between the two stories at the same time and and often um, Gowan is is mirroring the behavior of the animals as he's trying to like get himself out of these seductions. Um, but I mean this that's what adaptation is. It is it is leaving behind something that's formally formally fascinating. Um, to focus on 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 something that is more relevant. Um, so, do I think something is lost? No, I think I think Lowry does a great job of pulling what's important um, from that sequence and and getting it into his into his version of the story. 
So, right. Dev Patel, Gawain leaves the castle. He is off to the chapel to finally meet the Green Knight. Um, the color is just amazing here. It's these hazy oranges um, all throughout the sky. It really did kind of look like this in California during the height of the wildfire season. I'm not kidding. It really was like amazing to look at and terrible to breathe in. Um, but the he's moving through this just like amber-toned area before the fox gives him a final call to turn back like doom awaits you the fox finally speaks which we haven't seen it do in the whole film it's a very bold choice and sort of i um a previous guest on this episode uh as hammer had different feelings about it than i think i do i I, i'm i'm pro it being in there because it's so singular and weird but i think he made a fair case for why it was not good part of the green knight um that that kind of annoyed me i guess is that it depends on the audience not having seen Antichrist by Lars von Trier in some ways, because when the fox starts to talk in the Green Knight, it's a surprise. Um, yet it, it, it was to me it was silly and stupid. We are making a fantasy film after all, one in which it would not be out of place for an animal to talk. And I'm also a big fan of both Wes Anderson's The Fantastic Mr. Fox and Lars von Trier's Antichrist. And I wanted to uh, kind of contribute my part to the uh, talking fox lexicon uh, in movie history. <laughs> I don't care about that fox. It doesn't mean anything to me. That's good. <laughs> so, yeah. It was really yeah. cool. Oh, man. I mean, I think it's funny. And that's worth that's worth a lot, you know? Um. He reaches into the, he goes into the chapel. But he, he, like, he rejects the fox advice. I'm going to go get my head cut off. And he waits for this, the green knight to cut him. You know, he just, they just sit in stoicism against each other. I, I like the, Gawain earlier has made the comment to Arthur that, like, do you think the green knight is really just sitting in this fucking chapel waiting for me to show up? Yes. He was. He gets, <laughs> yes. he gets there and he was. <laughs> he, he, doesn't wa- he doesn't wake up until Christmas. The knight takes two strokes. Gawain flinches each time. On the third stroke, Wayne says, nope, I'm out of here. And he runs away. And what follows is a wordless sequence following his return to the castle. Um, it's shot in this lens. I forgot to write the note down for it, but it's this great lens that they've put on the Alexa, or the RE65 that they shot it with, where everything in the center of the frame is very focused and everything immediately off just like fades off or obscures, almost like they've rubbed Vaseline around just the circumference of the lens, but not the actual middle of itself. Um but it really sneaks up on you as a dream sequence. I didn't realize it was a dream. I mean, watching it, I believe it's just has what is what has happened because the, at the end of the story, Gawain survives through this kind of cleverness and uh, loophole, for lack of a better word, right? Do I have this right, that Gawain survives? In, in, the, poem? in the poem? Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's totally different. It's almost worth just one at a timing them. This dream sequence in which um, he follows his return to the castle. He, he, like, ascends the ranks. He's achieved honor in the eyes of other people, you know? Like, Arthur names him his successor. He leads this campaign in war. He has children. Essel has a child who he buys, and Merlin comes, you know, um, and takes it, which is a heartbreaking sequence. It's awful. He becomes, like, a tyrant, I think. It's hard, it's hard to read it otherwise. He's a tyrant, and... Um, this is why I feel that Morgan Le Fay doesn't want him to die. His mother doesn't want him to die. is because she's next to him and does not seem, like, upset or disappointed in this outcome. She accompanies him on his rise up until the very end when his castle is stormed and his head falls off. Yeah, but I, I, so I think this is, 
this is the this is the fox's choice this is reynard's choice to to be a trickster to um to be arthur or his knights to uh to, to play the game of chivalry but not actually live up to it in any way and 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 that is a false or it it, it is it is a choice but a choice that leads to misery not just for him but but to his lover and to his son and to his and to his realm it it feels very um a lot sort of like we were, what we were talking about in in Excalibur sort of the that lack of legitimacy at the top leads to sort of general social breakdown at at every level and 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 leads to um destruction um it's nice to be back in the castle world and be in kind of crowd scenes again <laughs> when it has become such a small movie. Um, like just one last sort of splash yeah. of just how rich the design is and the art direction here. Um, one of the things I learned is that the the costumes are all vegan. Um, there is no fur or leather. What? The, there's no fur or leather in the costume design. Oh, wow. And normally what they use is normally what they would use is plastic, but they also didn't want to use plastic because that's also like harmful to the environment. So these costumes are built out of I was looking up some of the types. There's tree bark that is repurposed into types of leather and clothing for people. There's fungus that has been made into leather. There's coconut leather. Like, it's just like, wow. it's a really, it's Man. a it's part of why I think it it's cohesive as a medieval movie, but it sits as like a different style than anything you've seen on Thrones or whatever. That, at first I was like, that's like a, like a very distressing postmodern sentence, vegan costumes, <laughs> but actually that rocks. Really hard. <laughs> we return to the chapel though it's all a dream like we wake up out of this like reverie dev patel has not survived the or the the encounter yet he's still in it but preparing for the third swing um and he removes the sash green knight strokes his cheek and says uh, well done my little knight now off with your head it rules yeah Congrats, you're a knight. <laughs> Lowry's directions to Innocent was to play this last scene like Santa Claus, which I I think is yeah. There's tenderness, like there is a weird, and it's that that same energy of like a Santa Claus meeting at the end of a Christmas movie, where like you didn't really know it would work, but here it is, kid. Like you you were on the nice list, and I got you a train. Yeah, <laughs> you're on the nice list. I'm gonna fucking kill you. <laughs> No, he's joking. I genuinely, I think he's joking. What do you mean? I think the Green Knight is joking. Like you... I think the Green Knight, when he says "off with your head," like you know, to so a, a parent, it is. I think it is. It is. I think it is only a game. What do you think, Caleb? Do you think he lives? Well, uh, I think it doesn't matter. I think what matters is that right. Galen accepted uh, that he would die and that to abandon the game. Or to treat it as just a game, um, would besmirch him forever. Um, do I think he is dead? Um, yes, I think I. I don't think it was a game. Uh, that Green Knight guy doesn't have a lot of yucks in him. But um, how about you, Frank? I think he dies. I think basically, and again, thinking of it as storytelling as like the different versions of, of Gawain that can exist there. I think that dream sequence is supposed to be uh, Gawain's, like what basically what the poem gives us. That Gawain, Gawain survives and he comes home and he's like, guys, everyone, I did it. I survived. There's this cool loophole. I could live through the Green Knight's third chop. 
but at what cost? And that like the poem we have is Gowan's dishonesty. Mm-hmm. Like that poem can only exist if Gowan lives through the encounter that he shouldn't by all rights kind of shouldn't based on the agreement of the Christmas game. Um, so Lowry says, I, Lowry, I like, it's not, he punches up the story, but I think he like, he lets Gawain ascend or Gowan ascend to a higher tier of, of virtue. We are living in the dishonest version of the Gowan and the Green Knight, and this film posits itself as the truthful one. I think that's a good reason. Because he's holding the green scarf. He's holding the green scarf at the end of the film. As you said, that that's his mark of shame that he has for the rest of his life. He has that he has that belt on him as he as he gets his head chopped off in the last in the in the dream sequence. At his death he removes the belt. Yeah. Um I, yeah, when I said I think he was joking, like I don't know if I don't know. Maybe these actually aren't inconsistent, but what I, what I mean, like, I, like the Santa Claus thing, I like totally agree. Like, like I think he like loves Gawain for his for what he is for standing up to this test. It is like sincerely, deeply congratulating him, um, and that can also be a preface to killing somebody. But that's that. I don't, yeah. That's just the only reason why I like find that like like I'm just like like I just can't read this scene as like ending with that. But I also I, I it's not an important question to ask. And so like it's like like a, we don't need to do the like Tony Soprano thing with it. You know, the Caleb's right that the like the point is is that he made the choice. You know. So Ted, you know, well, no, you weren't here last time. Uh, so uh, we like to end the show with our guest, who is often. Uh, or is is always uh, much smarter and more well spoken than we. Um, but the time has come for you, Ted, to debase yourself and to sink to our level into the muck. Is David Lowry's The Green Knight adapted from the anonymous Sir Gowan and the Green Knight? Is it a rat adaptation? Is it a bad adaptation? Does it make you steaming mad adaptation? Perhaps a little. Sad adaptation. Any variation thereof. One word and supporting sentences. Ted Meyer, what do you think? Well, it's a rad adaptation, and I'm I'm struggling to come up with a funnier way to say that. So I'll just do that. that's 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 why I was uh, pursing my lips. Uh, it's a fantastic movie. Um, I I think it, it's so interesting and um, visually I, I like takes an approach that i think is like shows that you can still make amazing cinematic things with small budgets you know and part of that is leaning into you know good but careful set work and then like you know go ahead and be like unselfconscious about your matte paintings or if you're going to use special effects don't hide from that do something dreamlike with it you know um and so, I, I mean, visually, I found it, like, really encouraging. And then it's it's such an interesting text. Um, we, we've had so many things to parse over. Um, I, it's still, I, nothing has taken its spot as uh, my number one on my list for 21 right now. But we'll, we'll see. Hell yeah. Caleb, how about you? Um, yeah, I think I think this is undeniably a adaptation. I think David Lowry does what so few directors who are dealing with this time period do in that he takes the idea of chivalry not as an antiquated joke, but as a serious way of living 
and interrogates it on its own terms and in doing so interrogates all of the arbitrary structures around which we build our own lives um i think it is a a thoughtful film i think it is a well-performed and well-crafted film um good job david you know this is what arthur should be We'll see you for Peter Pan and Wendy out 2022. <laughs> <laughs> How about you, Frank? Yeah, so I mean, so as I said, I, I watched this film uh, when I was just a few weeks into moving into California before starting grad school. And it was, um, I ended, it really sat along with me. Um, it has a very kind of, it sort of worms its way into your brain in ways you're not expecting to. And I really revisited the question of like honor and chivalry a lot while I thought about this movie and about learning and how painful and difficult it is to learn and sometimes the answer that you need to learn is the one you really wish you didn't have to like accepting your death on the chopping block be that chopping block from the green knight or as i struggle to try to pretend to be a teacher long enough to like give some young people like a half decent education as a ta so it's this is a adaptation from me it is a it's a it's a historical document with a lot of vitality in the present and for that reason i am also naming it a grad adaptation it has reminded me and clarified mm. a lot of things about grad school in ways that i wish it were not able to do but <laughs> yeah dude the only real road is the hard road <laughs> um ted thank you so much for being on this is an absolute blast having you back on to talk about uh about this film is there anything that you want to plug or promote or shout out at this time um no i mean if you're an architecture firm, keep me on your radar <laughs> um, in a few years. Um, uh, you can find me on Twitter at Grumpy Movie Boy, a terrible handle that I think I need to change. Um, and changed it, Ted has. You can now find him at Elliot underscore Gouda. That's at Elliot underscore G-O-U-L-D-A on Twitter. Um, you can find me on Instagram at DJ Ballgame. Instagram is the new uh, MySpace. So, um. Thank you to Slow Your Roll for our artwork. Thank you to Ted for guesting on this. Thank you to Zach Sisk for our... Th oh, I got my I got my order. I need to redo that again. Ted, thanks for being on. Thank you to Zach Sisk for our artwork. Thank you to Slow Your Roll for our theme song. Thank you to you, the listener, for tuning in. We're going to see you next week for maybe some more King Arthur, maybe some of our next miniseries, depending on what the release order is for these. In conclusion... Ralph Innocent says, go back to the movies. Uh, have a great, have a great day, everybody. Bye.